stop being preoccupied with sense experience. And as you notice, I've been using this word preoccupation, and that to me is a way of talking about this idea of attachment. So we have this idea of non-attachment in Buddhism, or non-grasping, but they get oftentimes misunderstood. So someone will say to a mother, you shouldn't be attached to your children. It's like saying you shouldn't breathe. You know, it's kind of, and the mother feels guilty because she loves her children or something awful like that. But I think non-preoccupation is an interesting way of looking at that. If I am a parent and I'm constantly worried about my children, uh, and my mind's constantly in thought, then obviously that's not peaceful, one thing. But also because I'm engaged with something which is changing and outside of my control, I'm not available to the peace of the mind because my mind has no space. I'm not available. So these two ideas I find a helpful way of talking about non-attachment is non-preoccupation or availability. Now, when we sit here and we're observing the breath, we're with sense experience, but we're available. Because it's not about the breath, it's about the awareness itself. And that's what we're trying to emphasize in Buddhist spiritual practice, I think. Buddhist ethical practice, we're emphasizing our objective world. Morality, my responsibilities as a monk to my community, to my rule, and so on and so forth. So that defines me as an individual. So we have that part. And then the other part is the spiritual part, which is this very different approach to our sense experience. It's not the approach of trying to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. It's the approach of not being preoccupied with it. All right? And so the three things I was suggesting in this meditation and last night, one is to have this kind of realization or exploration, one has to come to the present moment. So that kind of affirmation I was saying, it's like this. And of course you could say, well, that's a tautology. Well, how else could it be? You know, it's just this. But if you're just looking for truth as an intellectual exercise, then it seems silly. It's like this. Well, how else could it be? But actually as a kind of existential statement and a, a kind of suchness statement, it brings you to the present moment in a way where you become available. Because it's not about how it is, it just is like this. So it might be happy or unhappy, it might be painful or sad, it might be beautiful or whatever, but it's like this. So that very simple statement, it's like this, is I think the beginning. The beginning of, and to some extent, the end of the spiritual journey. Again and again. So I would during this weekend, I'd emphasize that if you can, it's like this. So if you, you know, if you go outside for a walk and there's a red light, it's like this. Don't walk across in the red light. <laughs> so that's ethics. Ethics is you take the green light rather than red light. So that saves you a lot of problems. But just the sense it's like this. So do that constantly. And that's what we mean by awareness or mindfulness or presence and that we can do but we tend to forget to do that because we're caught up in our thinking our planning past and future so it's a kind of rigorous practice which we can all do it's very, very ordinary so that was one thing 
and the other to try to begin to see that there is a way of perceiving where I am here and you are there. So there's this experience of space and spatial references. You're out there, I'm here, and so on and so forth. But that whole experience, sense experience of sight and perception of distance and so on, happens in awareness. And that is a very subtle kind of way of considering life. And it's something that I found, it just works on me. Works on me in a way which always brings me to peace. So I constantly do that. You know, this is in awareness. My emotions are in awareness. The experience of sound is in awareness. And again, it's again, it's it's emphasizing the the awareness rather than the quality of the experience. So those two things: presence, and then this attitude. This is in awareness, and then change. When I emphasize the, the perception of change. I have to be very still and attentive. If I grasp any object, I've lost the perception of change. So if I perceive this room to be too noisy, say, because of the uh, air conditioning, that's something that I add to it. But as soon as I do that, this is too noisy. I become engaged with the object, with the sound. And because I say it's too noisy, then I want an alternative less noisy and I start to react to it and I no longer am available to space, to silence, to stillness. I am preoccupied with sound. And hence we emphasize desirelessness. And desirelessness is one way that, that we talk about this deep peace of the mind. Desirelessness. There's nothing wrong with desire. But if that's our only avenue of approach to life through desire, then will always be preoccupied. And what we're really seeking is desirelessness. If you think about it, when you're hungry in the morning and you eat uh, this fabulous breakfast that I just had, I want the breakfast, I want to have the food, but I do get satiated, right? And then in that satiation, I go, oh yeah, my happiness depends on food. Well, it does to a certain extent. So we have a certain gratification which takes place naturally, but then we mistake that to be the ultimate, and we're constantly looking for gratification. But all of us have, you know, we've probably all done sex, drugs, and rock and roll, so we know that it has its limits. <laughs> and you realize, well, yeah, okay, desire can bring some fulfillment, but ultimately it doesn't bring peace. It's necessary. I need to take care of the body, I need to feed the body, but isn't there another avenue? And so you begin to, like as meditators, you begin to look at something like, physical discomfort in your meditation, you see discomfort as an object, you don't react to it from, I mean, you have the desire to move, but you don't, because you, you don't want to look at this, and you realize you come to a sense of peace even though you had discomfort, and that's desirelessness. It's not dependent on comfort, it's something which is deeper and more profound. So we put a lot of emphasis on letting go of desire. And letting go of desire can be done through awareness. One of the difficulties of meditation is that we try to get enlightened. And the, the very idea that I am someone who is inadequate, and I have to get to another space called enlightenment or adequacy, is not a good project. Because <laughs> inevitably, you miss the whole point. 
Now, if I can feel inadequate, what's it feel like, and still do my work, but if I can feel like self-disparagement or uh, a sense of I'm not good enough or whatever as an object, as an object in consciousness, and see that it arises and ceases, I don't have to go anywhere. I may get fired <laughs> at work, but I begin to see that that which is aware is neither adequate or inadequate. It's something that's just bigger than my emotional tone. Now, there are certain mindsets which are very conducive to awareness. So if you think about revenge, like let's say I've um, had a bad encounter with a Hindu mystic or something. You know, he levitated and I couldn't. He embarrassed me in front of the whole Buddhist world. And, and I go home to the monastery, I've got to levitate. I've got to learn how to levitate. And I'm going to show him. And I carry that around, that suffering in itself. But also, I'm preoccupied with memory, with thought. Huh? But if I can change it, I forgive him, or I say, well, he's a pretty neat guy. He can levitate or whatever. I let go of revenge. Not only is it more pleasant, but it's also I'm available. So there are states of mind which makes you more available, and they are the loving states of mind. That's why in Buddhism we emphasize compassion so much, and empathy. Because when I can connect with you in a way of fellowship and uh, compassion and share your journey with you, and yet not make your burden my burden, and I have my burden, you have your burden, but when I can be that way with you, that makes me very available. So... There is a way of living your life which is conducive to liberation. And that's, as I said last night, being a good person. Being responsible and being caring for one's children and one's culture and so on and so forth. So what we try to do in the worldly uh, venues is develop wholesome states of mind. So for instance, say I'm, I'm presently making a desk for the library. Someone just gave me 200 board feet of black cherry, which is a beautiful wood. <laughs> and so I've been processing the wood and, and so on and so forth. And um, so you think about what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not a trained uh, cabinet maker, so I'm learning all the time. And uh, I'm working with machinery, which is very dangerous. So 30 years ago, I put my thumb through a table saw. And you see there's exhibit A. So don't put your thumb through a table saw. Not a good idea. They took me to the hospital, and the nurse said, yeah, what a mess. <laughs> Thanks. And they asked me, actually, they said, what's your profession? What's my profession? Just fix my thumb, will you? <laughs> I said, I'm a monk. Said, okay. They wrapped it up, and they waited too long, and then they came in, and they stuck a metal rod in there, fused it, and I found out later, if I would have said I'm a pianist, they would have got a really good surgeon. <laughs> but Monk doesn't rate much. Then I had this <laughs> steel pin sticking out. And all the monks are making fun of me, right? So I've got this bandage on with a steel pin sticking out. And I had to go to an appointment to get the pin out. <laughs> so one of the monks, he's got a wicked sense of humor. He says, Beer Dhamma, they're just going to take a pair of pliers and pull. Oh, no, no, my thumb. So I go to the doctor. He gets a pair of pliers, just like, <laughs> really? And he pulls it out. And it didn't hurt. 
Anyway, that's a digression. <laughs> um, so I'm working with dangerous machinery. And, um, you know, 30,000 reps or whatever. So routers and thicknesser and planer and table saw and chop saw and so on. So it's dangerous. So I have to be, I have to be very careful. And then I'm also like uh, joining bits of wood, so I'm doing mortise and tenon, and it has to be, you know, there's a hole and a tongue into the hole, so it has to be very accurate, so I have to measure. And then all the, uh, all the joints have to be coordinated, all the wood has to be squared, so there's a lot of measuring and accuracy and so on. So what's the result of that kind of work is I have to be very present. And if I get restless or I get tired, then I tend to rush things and regret it or cut my thumbs off. So then I try to practice. I actually try to practice with tiredness and being accurate with tiredness. I actually do that as a practice. You know, if I'm getting off beam, I just, I leave. But so I try to use all of that to really get a sense of presence, strong sense of presence. And so the results for my, for me, you know, as a person who likes craft, is a sense of confidence and a sense of carefulness. And that's a very good quality for the spiritual life because that then carries forward into the way I make a cup of tea or the way I bow. or And that confidence is very good for me too. And so then I, I say, well, what's confidence like? What does confidence feel like? So now it's no longer about the woodwork. It's about what is the quality of confidence in consciousness and how would that be appropriate to uh, my meditation? So the spiritual life is really conjoined with all these things. In developing this capacity of non-grasping, you do things in the world which are conducive to that, and they all start to add up. You know, there's the confidence that can come from a situation. So you're at home, you've got no pressures, uh, you've got your own music and your own books and your own lifestyle, and you feel confident. But then you get... You know, it's like my friend died of pancreatic cancer. Whoa, that's different. That's no more, that's, you know, you're outside of your comfort zone, seriously. So where would confidence be in that kind of a predicament of sickness? Well, if your refuge is an awareness of change, if your refuge is in presence and awareness of change, that this sickness is in awareness, you can have a confidence to know your own fear. So I'm sure if, if I got a diagnosis like six months to live, which my friend had, yeah, it's a bit of a shock. Family and grandkids and all of that. But if your confidence is in things, in health and in stuff, then when that stuff is taken away, what does your confidence go? It's dependent on. But awareness of change is not dependent on your health, your family situation, your work. It's something which is, I would say, transcendent, although people don't like that word maybe. But it's not dependent on sickness. So I could, and when I get it, I'll send you a postcard, when I get my diagnosis, <laughs> and, and uh, I will, um, or I'll be hit by a train or something. But um, I'll send you a postcard anyway. <laughs> but but when that comes up, where you know, if I'm confident in awareness, then what can blow that away? So even even like I mean, I, maybe I'm being 
naive now. Maybe when it comes, I'll fall apart. I don't know. But it just seemed to me that that is a refuge. Yeah, that is a refuge within the, the even the more horrible kind of changes we're going to have to face, that we will face. Huh? And so there is something very profound about doing this kind of consideration. Where, where do I have my confidence? Do I have confidence in things? And the Buddha say, no, don't take your refuge in things because things change. Do your best to make things nice. Do your best to, to care for and be a loving person because that's good because that's a factor for enlightenment. But things in themselves are unreliable. And so my teacher, Ajahn Chah, would always talk about that. He'd say, it's unreliable. Don't count on it. Mine, uncertain. And it was interesting. He, you know, he constantly banged away at that. Some monk would have a horrible week of meditation. He'd go to Lumpa Cha and say, oh, I'm just down the tube. I can't, I fall asleep and I, I fall asleep even on the walking path. And it's horrible. It's horrible. I'm not getting anywhere. He says, uncertain. And then another monk would come. Oh, I just saw the Buddha. Fantastic meditation. Oh, it's just, oh, it's so good. Uncertain. So he wouldn't let, let you, like, hold on to anything. Or, you know, you'd ask, you know, you'd have some meditation experiences. Is that stream entry? He said, I don't know. Is that stream entry? <laughs> Uncertain. So you couldn't take any position with him. And you began to see, so yeah, awareness isn't a position. It's not a doctrine. It's knowing all the positions that come and they go. And that's why it's a refuge. So when you feel a lack of confidence in life in some way, what is it that can be confident of a lack of confidence? And that's awareness. 